You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our next reader is a uh, Lambda Award winner, and we'll explain later, or she'll explain what the Lambda Award with, is for the Gilda stories. She's also adapted work for stage, and she's been published in the SF Chronicle, the New York Times, the Village Voice, Essence Magazine, The Advocate, and has appeared in a number of anthologies. What about McSweeney's? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet, okay. I'm ever hopeful. All right. Without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Jewel Gomez. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with these wonderful writers. I think it's the first time, Terry, and that we've been on the same program together. I'm, I'm pretty exci- excited about that. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, uh, I... Uh, first read Octavia Butler in the 70s when I read Kindred and it went out of print for a long time and I had you know the only copy in my neighborhood which I you know kept under lock and key because people were always trying to borrow it and it really influenced me to understand that yes I could write speculative fiction I'd always wanted to I was a Trekkie I read everything I could but uh, it just never seemed like I could because I never saw uh, myself reflected in it and kind of like Octavia Butler says in this we were on a panel together, which I transcribed at a science fiction uh, conference several years ago, and she said there that her aunt told her when she was about 14, Negroes don't write. And boy, was she wrong. So I I feel like there was this part of me that felt like, you know, colored girls are not going to be writing speculative fiction. But then I read Kindred, and my whole world changed. It was like a door opened up. And partially it was because the work itself is so grounded in a reality, certainly not a reality I know personally, but a reality, a really core reality of uh, slavery. And then it takes off from there into what possibilities are. So I want to read a little section from Kindred, and then I'm going to read from the Gilda stories. Um, And I I had a, a... when I started writing the Gilda stories, several people told me, why are you trying to write a black lesbian vampire novel? That's, you know, people don't, Negroes don't do that. And, um, and I'll just say, the book has, has been in print since 1991. So somebody is reading it. And, um, and, you know, and I've gone on to write other things, you know, uh, speculative fiction. I wrote a, a novella about a tattoo that changes you and, you know, a perfume that gets you, you know, lovers and things like that. So, and people buy them and they read them. So, uh, you know. Isn't that what perfume's for? Yeah, but no, this one really gets them. Oh, <laughs> it works. <laughs> yeah, it really gets them. 
So let me just read. I, I know all of you have read Kindred, and I just, but I just want to read a little section because I know when I first started reading this book, it was as, it was as if I'd walked through a door that I didn't know was in front of me. I lost my arm on my last trip home, my left arm. And I lost about a year of my life and much of the comfort and security I had not valued until it was gone. When the police re released Kevin, he came to the hospital and stayed with me so that I would know I hadn't lost him too. But before he could come to me, I had to convince the police that he did not belong in jail. That took time. The police were shadows who appeared intermittently at my bedside to ask me questions I had to struggle to understand. How did you hurt your arm, they asked. Who hurt you? My attention was captured by the word they used, hurt, as though I'd scratched my arm. Didn't they think I knew it was gone? Accident, I heard myself whisper. It was an accident. They began asking me about Kevin. Their words seemed to blur together at first, and I paid little attention. After a while, though, I replayed them and suddenly realized that these men were trying to blame Kevin for hurting my arm. No, I shook my head weakly against the pillow. Not Kevin. Is he here? Can I see him? I said this over and over until the vague police shapes let me alone, until I woke to find Kevin sitting, dozing beside my bed. Then Kevin was standing over me, his hands on my face, turning my head toward him. He didn't say anything. After a moment, he sat down again, took my, hands and, took my hand and held it, because she's only got one hand now. I felt as though I could have lifted my other hand and touched him. I felt as though I had another hand. I tried again to look, and this time he let me. Somehow I had to see to be able to accept that I knew what was so. After a moment, I lay back against the pillow and closed my eyes. Above the elbow, I said. They had to. Um, da -da -da -da. There's no, she says to Kevin, there's no way a thing like this could have been your fault. That's debatable, but it certainly wasn't your fault. Are you still in trouble? I don't think so. They're sure I did it, though. But there was no witnesses, and you won't cooperate. Also, I don't think they can figure out how I could have hurt you in the way you were hurt. I closed my eyes again, remembering the way I had been hurt, remembering the pain. Are you all right? Yes. Tell me what you told the police. The truth. He toyed with my hand for a moment silently. I looked at him, found him watching me. If you told those deputies the truth, I said softly, you'd still be locked up in a mental institution. So that's the uh, wonderful story of the character who goes back and forth in time. Uh, from her contemporary marriage uh, as a young woman of 26, to find herself awakening in the midst of slavery and unable to, to stop that going back and forth, traveling through time. And at this particular moment, she's popped back into the contemporary life with her arm embedded in the plaster of the wall of her house. So when I read that, I thought, ah, oh, there is room for me. 
so um, I was very interested in how the the characters uh, were contemporary, yet she was in slavery. I, I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by her creation of a, a young woman who was powerful. She had direction. She made a choice to continue to return uh, and try to help people that she encountered in this horrific circumstance and try to have her husband be a part of that helping. And, and to find a female character like that was, was pretty extraordinary in 1979. So I'm going to read a section of the Gilda stories, um, which is uh, a feminist tale, feminist in the sense of I had to figure out how to have a vampire, uh, a family of vampires that could take blood and not kill people. Uh, I know Dexter is really popular, but it was really hard for me to create a serial killer as uh, you know a heroic figure. So... Um, so I had to figure that out and, and, and that there was an exchange that she did that was, was part of that uh, balance of, of life and death. And um, so this is one of those scenes. Gilda had already stepped back onto the road intent on fulfilling the stirring inside her when she saw two men on horseback approaching from the west. They were moving at a good pace as if racing, but they slowed when they noticed her and pulled up short a few feet away. One swung down from the saddle immediately. He stood beside her, stood before her with an angry glare that quickly turned into a leer when he realized she was not a man. This here's a nigger gal we got here. What you doing out on the road this hour? Gilda didn't respond, but let herself breathe in the smell of the horses and sense their anxiety and dissatisfaction with their masters. There was an idle communication between them and her that went unnoticed by the riders. Gilda felt reassured by the horses' solid presence, their lack of malevolence, and their easy response to comforting messages that she sent them. The other horseman dismounted, holding a glistening whip coiled at his hip. Maybe we teach one more nigga a lesson tonight, eh, cook? Gilda peered at the braided leather, dark with blood she could smell. She wondered who had been their most recent pupil. Yeah, Zach, I think there's a lesson here for sure. Gilda still didn't move or speak. She stood as if frozen, but her mind flooded with words given to her. She was not afraid as she had been on a night long ago in a root cellar where she was attacked. She tasted the acid of hatred inside of her mouth and wanted to be full of it to teach the lesson these two needed to learn. She must be mute, Zach. Don't seem to talk, do she? The taller man moved close to Gilda and yanked her hair, pulling her face up toward his. The moonlight glistened on her dark skin. Before he could press her advantage, Gilda grabbed his wrist, the crack of bone audible in the night. 
She pulled his hand from her head, twisted it behind his back, raising it so high the pain cut his voice before he could scream. She gave a sharp twist and let go, only when she felt his muscles quaking with pain. He whipped around toward her again, and she smashed the side of his face with her fist. The snap of his neck broke through the night as his body crumpled onto the ditch beside the road. His fellow rider backed away, reaching behind him for the reins of his horse, but his mount deliberately twisted out of his reach. Gilda was upon him before he realized his position. She caught his whip in her left hand and pulled him backward. He fell to the ground, then scurried back off the road to the brush, with Gilda bounding behind him. She cracked the whip over his head, then lay a stroke across his back. That she hit him with his own whip seemed to startle him more than the pain. At the second lash, he turned to face Gilda, his eyes filled with rage. He gasped when he saw the swirling amber of her eyes and the sinewy strength of her body, thinking they'd been wrong, that it was a man. An Indian, he thought, confused by the moonlight and his own fear. She cracked the whip, this time across his chest, then his cheek, opening the flesh almost to the bone. Gilda threw the whip down and leapt upon him, twisting his head to expose the pulsing vein in his neck. He was already faint with shock, yet Gilda sensed his disbelieving terror build. She, she scraped his flesh roughly with her nails and watched the blood pulse from his neck, searching for what he felt when he lay open the flesh of men. Her chest swelled with anticipation as she understood the terrible joy he experienced at demanding terror and death. She drew his blood into her quickly, then let him slip to the ground. She watched the blood continue to stream from his neck, soaking into the muddy ditch. She could feel life ebbing from him and was shocked at the excitement it aroused. One death was enough. It had been so long since she'd been caught unawares like this. She knelt beside him, holding her hand to the wound on his neck and cheek until the bleeding stopped. She left him nothing in exchange except a simple recollection of falling instead of the horror of the real memory. His breath, his breath was shallow, but he was no longer in danger. Gilda was sickened by her anger and the thrill of confrontation. It was the nightmarish pleasure she had seen in people's eyes, the one she feared would become her own. She climbed back to the road and stared down at the face of the one who was dead, frozen in the moonlight. She took in his features as she'd been taught and tried to absorb some sense of his true spirit. This was only the second one. His image now took its place beside the other in a corner of herself that Gilda seldom visited. The first one had been taken on a road not unlike this one, in the dark, where mortals seemed to feel that what was done was not seen. She had ta not talked with anyone about that time, just as she wouldn't speak of this death until she could talk of it with someone she loved. She turned back toward her farm. Instead of her usual swift pace, Gilda took an each step with deliberation. She was leaden with exhaustion, 
Anger had flared and burned out, leaving the taste of ash. One death. She was grateful it had not been two. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.